All right, guys, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'll be doing that a bunch of times, but I have a little bit of a, I think a head cold or allergies or something. A sound, like I, in my head, I sound like Mickey Mouse. So, <clears throat> so forgive me. Yeah, I'd just be like, <clears throat> so uh, Romans chapter 8, this is our seventh study in Romans 8. We're going to finish it here today. Can you imagine seven? We started in December 3rd. Well, we just started getting into Romans, and here we are in, at the end of February. Crazy, right? New Year's flying by. So Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. <clears throat> I probably should have looked at some of the notes that Rory sent me. I didn't actually even look at the email. So <laughs> I was telling him, like, well, I didn't even look at the email you sent me, bro. And he's like, oh, gosh. <clears throat> so let's go ahead and stand together. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. We're going to read this section together, we'll pray, and we'll jump in to the Word of God together. Verse 31, for then, <clears throat> sorry, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Awesome passage, right? Yeah, awesome. I just got super nervous. <laughs> Let's go ahead and pray. <clears throat> Father, we just come before you today and we are so incredibly thankful for your word. You say in your word, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so, Lord, we pray through the teaching, through the study of your word today, through the work of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would breathe life into us today. That you would encourage us and build us up and strengthen us today. That your church would be edified today. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do all that is in your heart. Lord, that you'd open our minds and open our hearts to receive it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. On January 6, 1941, President Franklin Delano, I didn't know it was Delano, I always said Delaware, right? <laughs> Franklin Delaware, Roosevelt, it's Delano, Roosevelt, addressed Congress on the state of the war in Europe, 1941, the state of the war in Europe. And much of what he said has really been forgotten, but as he came to the close of his statement, of his address, he, looked, he said he looked forward to a world founded upon four essential human freedoms. And he went ahead and named them. He said this, the freedom of speech, the freedom of worship, the freedom from want, and the freedom from fear. Now, these words are still remembered, and even though their ideals have not yet been fully realized in other places of the, of the, of the world, Paul in Romans chapter 8 is 
calling us to understand the freedoms that we've received in Christ. In fact, Romans chapter 8 has been called the Christian's Declaration of Freedom. And that's the title of this morning's message, the Christian's Declaration of Freedom. For in it, Paul declares four spiritual freedoms that we enjoy in our union with Christ. And so I'm going to take a little bit of time here before we jump into studying verses 31 through 39, giving us a a real quick synopsis or summary of all of Romans chapter 8. And we're going to start with the first freedom that he reveals to us in verses 1 through 4, and that's the freedom from judgment. The freedom from judgment. And upon, up until this point in the study of the book of Romans, we have seen that the law condemns. But in chapter 7, we're told that the believer has a new relationship to the law. That through our identification with the death and resurrection of Christ, we have been set free from the law. And in verses 1 through 4, Paul gives us three statements. Three statements about the believer and the law. The first is found in verse 2. That the law cannot claim you. It cannot claim you. It has no right over your life. Secondly, in verse 3, he says that the law cannot condemn you. It cannot condemn you. And thirdly, in verse 4, the law cannot control you. And so that's the first freedom we find in Romans chapter 8, freedom from judgment. The second is freedom from defeat, found in verses 5 through 17, freedom from defeat. In verses 5 through 8, Paul contrasts the saved and the unsaved. In verses 9 through 11, he, states the, about, he talks about the presence of the Holy Spirit being the evidence of true conversion in Christ that we possess the Holy Spirit. In verses 12 through 17, he expands that and says this, not only do we have the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit has us as well. And so again, we have freedom from defeat. Thirdly, freedom from discouragement, verses 18 through 30. Freedom from discouragement. In this section, Paul deals with a very real problem of suffering and pain. And I was thinking about this. It's a few weeks ago, Pastor Rory was teaching through this section, and there was such a unique and wonderful move of the Spirit as God is working through the Rogers' pain and their sorrow and expressing that. And we just heard the week before, I think it was, and and how Jeff came and shared with us in Psalm 44 about lamenting and how there's a place to lament. And we as a people... We're called to stand up if we're in a place where we're feeling the effects of pain and suffering. And many in the church stood up. And I remember Rory saying, guys, look around to those who are standing up and know that you're not alone. And then he called the church to pray for us. We have this thing in our mind where we think if we're going through pain and suffering that we just kind of have to have this kind of a, a stoic mindset where we just suffer in silence, right? That's kind of the old you know, uh, special forces motto, suffer in silence. And yet, God has called us to, to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. And so Paul deals with this issue of pain and suffering in verses 18 through 30 of Romans chapter 8. And perhaps the best, best way for us to understand this section is to note the three groanings that he speaks of. And groaning speaks of a deep, inarticulate sound in response to pain or despair. It speaks of a guttural expression of hurt and disheartenment. And yesterday I was standing there trying to 
give you guys an example. I'm going to give them an example of what this sounds like. But if you're not actually going through it, it's really hard to actually express it, right? Rory talked about this thing where it's like this moaning, this, this, this deep pain that just expresses itself through a sound, a wailing, he described it as. And all of us have been in that place, I'm sure. If we haven't, there's going to be a time where all of us will go through it. So it's an inarticulate sound in response to pain and suffering. And the very first groan he speaks of is, he tells us in verses 18 through 22, that creation itself groans in eager expectation for the revealing of the sons of God, for the return of Christ, for him to reestablish his rule and reign here on the earth, to put back um, to put creation back in the place that he had originally created to be in Genesis chapter 1, to return it to that perfect ideal of uh, an environment and creation. But today, Paul tells us that it's continually groaning. I was thinking about Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, when God created the heavens and the earth and he was finished. What does it say? That he looked at his creation and he said, it was good. After he created humanity, he said it was very good. But something happened in Genesis chapter 3 that changed all of that. And since that time, for the last 2,000 plus years, actually, sorry, 6,000, 8,000, 10,000, depending on where your math is, right? You do the math, right? 10,000 years or so, creation has been in this state of corruption, a state of deterioration, all because of what man has done. And it was just kind of a, a daunting thought to think of our sin, how it has these wide-ranging ripple effects that it doesn't just affect us, it affects those around us, those near and those who are far, and it even affects the environment in which we live in, this earth in which we live upon. There is suffering, there is death, there is pain, there is corruption and decay, decay, all of which, of course, is a result of Adam's sin and is not the fault of creation. Listen to what Charles Cranfield says. He says, The whole magnificent theater of the universe, together with all its splendid properties and all the varied chorus of subhuman life, created for God's glory, I like how he says this, is cheated of its true fulfillment... So long as man, the chief actor in the great drama of God's praise, fails to contribute his rational part. Reminds me of what Paul says in Romans chapter 12 when he encourages us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and well-pleasing to the Lord. I like how the Amplified Version translates it. He talks about it's our reasonable, rational, logical, intelligent act of worship, that we were created by God to spend time with him, to commune with him. In fact, the, the Westminster Catechism says that man was created for this purpose, even asking the question, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and what else? To enjoy him forever. We were created to have communion with God, to have intimate fellowship with him. And as long as man does not do that, and he says, how does he say this, that that creation is cheated of its true fulfillment, as long as man, the chief actor in God's great drama of praise, fails to contribute his rational part. 
As long as humanity fails to recognize God, as long as humanity fails to turn their heart and their face to God and to praise Him for who He is and to literally fulfill the reason, the purpose of why we were created, and as long as that is not fulfilled, creation stays in this place, this status, this condition of corruption, groaning and longing for the return of Christ. But one day, creation will be delivered, and the groaning creation will become the glorious creation when God lifts the curse of sin and corruption. Warren Wiersbe said this, today's groaning bondage will be exchanged for tomorrow's glorious liberty. And oh, what a great day that will be. Amen? The second groaning, is he tells us in verse 23 through 25, is talks about the believer's groaning. And the reason why we've grown is because we've experienced what is called the first fruits of the Spirit, a foretaste of the glory to come. We understand, as new creations in Christ, that this world that we used to call home is not our home, that we're just pilgrims, we're just passing through. We have a home. It's not on this side of heaven, it's on the other side. It's where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Paul would say this, to be absent from the body is to be what? present with the Lord. And there's something within us, now that we are alive to God, there's something within us that longs to be in his presence, to be with him. And we feel like we're orphans, we feel like foreigners apart from him until until that day when we are with him face to face. And so there's this groaning, this longing in our hearts to be with him. I remember years ago when I was in Brazil, we had a friend come to visit us, and she was kind of going through a hard time, and She confessed to us. She goes, you know, I just feel, she's married, she has kids, and she goes, I just feel like something's not right, that I have to repent. And I said, what's going on? And she goes, I feel like I'm just not being faithful to my husband. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, because I just long to be with God. I long to be with him. My heart is his. And I feel like I'm divided. I'm not giving my husband every part of my heart because I so long to be with the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? There's something within us that longs for that. And this makes us want to see the Lord, to receive this new glorified body that the scriptures speak of, to live with him and serve him forever. Paul describes it this way in Philippians chapter uh, 3, verses 20 through 21. He says, for our citizenship, again, this idea that we, this is not our home, that we're just passing through, that we have a home, we have a trajectory, right? We have a destination in front of us. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. And again, what a great and awesome day that will be. Whether no more pain, no more stiffness, right? No more physical infirmity. What a great day that will be. He talks about conforming to his image according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And until that day, Paul tells us in verse 24 that we wait and we hope. And what that tells us is, how that encourages us, is that, The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. 
Everything on this side of heaven, the good and the bad, pales in comparison to the glory, he tells us in verse 18, that we will receive when we stand with him one day. Amen? So the suffering and the pain we experience in this world is temporary and will one day give way to eternal glory. And the third groan he speaks of is in verses 25 through 30. This tells us that God is not blind to what we're going through. Rather, he's concerned about the trials of his people. And when, he has, and when Jesus ministered here on earth, it tells us in both Mark chapter 7 and John chapter 11 that Jesus was able to identify with the pain and suffering of humanity. In Mark chapter 7, verse 34, Jesus heals a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And he sticks his fingers in his ears and he spits And he looks up into heaven and it says that he sighed. And the context is literally that he groaned. It's that deep, guttural, inexpressible pain and and, and compassion where he's able to connect with the suffering and pain of another man. And he just puts his fingers in his ears and he looks up to heaven and he's like, oh, he understands it. In John chapter 11, we learn about Lazarus. Lazarus has passed away and Jesus is surrounded by his sisters and family and friends and all these individuals who are weeping and, and wailing. And it says in verse 33 that Jesus groaned in his spirit. He's able to compassionately identify with the suffering of those around him. Recognizing what sin has done to the human race. In verse 38, it says he groaned in himself. He so completely identified with humanity that in verse 35, it literally says, the shortest verse in the Bible, that Jesus wept. And today, the Holy Spirit groans with us and feels the burdens of our weaknesses and our suffering. And this groaning leads him to pray for us so that we might be led into the will of God. In other words, he intercedes so that we might live in the will of God in spite of our pain, in spite of our suffering. And so that's where we have been so far in the last six weeks. And today we're beginning the fourth freedom, the freedom from fear. And so initially we saw the freedom from judgment, freedom from defeat, freedom discouragement, and today the freedom from fear. Verses 31 through 39. Now, I remember FDR once said a famous statement, the only thing to fear is what? Fear itself. Fear is an intense, unpleasant emotional response aroused by impending danger, evil, pain, or loss. And the fear of loss and abandonment is huge in our society. People are constantly influenced by fear, motivated by fear. It's why we hide our sin. It's why we lie. It's why we deceive. That's why we hold things tightly, keep things and people at a distance, because we're afraid of what they might think, what they might say what they might do what we might lose and so fear is a great motivator positively and negatively it impacts who we are and who we are not what we do and what we do not it shapes our relationships and shapes us personally sometimes those fears are legitimate but most of the time 
They're perceived. Most of the time, they're imagined. You guys know the acronym for fear? False evidence appearing real, right? That's what fear is, false evidence appearing real. But nonetheless, it has a very real power over us, doesn't it? No one likes it, but all of us are impacted in some way, shape, or form. And so Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, deals with the very real fear in our lives, the fear of separation, the fear of somehow losing the love of God, doing something that would cause us to be separated from him. So these verses, 31 through 39, deal with the security of the believer. Look at verse 31 of Romans chapter 8. For then, or it says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So on the heels of Paul's glorious, triumphant revelation of the golden chain of our salvation that Rory took us through last week in Romans chapter 8, 28 through 30, Paul begins 31 by asking a summative question. What then shall we say to these things? Literally, he's like, it's almost ironic. He's saying like, what what else can be said? What else can be added to all that God has done? And what did he tell us in verse 30? He's predestined us and those whom he's predestined. He's called those whom he's called. He has justified and those whom he's justified, he has glorified. What else is there to say is pretty much what he says. But what are the things he's talking about here? What else can we say about these things? Verses 28 through 30? Yes, but more than that. All of chapter 8? Yes, but more than that. He's literally summing up everything he's spoken of in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. So chapters 5 through 8 are summed up in verses 31 through 39. And he asserts that we have nothing to fear in past, present, or future because we are secure in the love of Christ. John Stott says, The apostle's answer to his own question is to ask five more questions, right? He asks a question, and he goes, oh, I'll answer it, and he asks five more questions, to which there is no answer. He hurls them into space, as it were, in a spirit of bold defiance. He challenges everybody and every, sorry, anybody and everybody in earth, sorry, in heaven, earth, or hell, to answer them and to deny the truth which they contain, but there is no answer. For no one and nothing can harm the people whom God has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. No one and nothing can harm the people whom God has foreknown, predestined, called, and glorified. With this in mind, in this section, Paul provides five immutable facts Five immutable facts that prove that there is no separation between the believer and the Lord. The first is found in verse 31. It is simply this, that God is for us. God is for us. What is unique about Christianity from every other religion in the world is they have a a fear that they have to somehow please the God or gods that they serve. They have to somehow earn his favor. But the Bible tells us that we can't earn his favor no matter what we do. We can't do it. We're not good enough. We're not consistent enough. But God loves us because he loves us. He loves us because he loves us. And the first immutable fact that we see in this section is that God is for us. 
Now, let's be real for a moment. Christianity is not all unicorns and rainbows, is it? It is difficult. It is rough. And some of us have found out the hard way that it will, it will, it will chew you up and spit you out. This morning, I was thinking of like, man, if I could put a video up, I was thinking about, if you guys have seen the movie Avengers, right? And there's a section in the war for New York where Loki is fighting against the Hulk. And the Hulk comes in, he starts charging Loki, and Loki goes, enough! And Hulk just stops in his, in his tracks. Enough! He goes, I am a god, and I will not put up. And just then the Hulk grabs him by his feet and goes, whack, 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 and then throws him on the ground and walks away and goes, puny god, right? That's how I feel sometimes. I feel like Loki in this world sometimes, that the world chews you up and spits you out. It can be rough. And all we have to do is look at the world around us and see that the unbelieving, persecuting world is opposed to us. The sin in our own lives is opposed to us. Death is very real enemy to us. And defeated, yes, but not destroyed. And so is the devil, together with all the principalities and powers of darkness, which are mentioned in verse 38. Indeed, the world, the flesh, and the devil are marshaled against us. And we are overwhelmed outnumbered and sometimes it feels like the deck is stacked against us that we can't get a break it's overwhelming it can be daunting but paul tells us here in romans chapter 8 verse 31 on the contrary in his person and in his providence god is for us he is our greatest cheerleader and he's on our side i have a great mom a phenomenal mom she is Up until I met my wife, she was my best, best, best friend. She's my BFF for life. And then I met my wife, and she has now become my BFF, and my mom is a real close second. I love her. She is an amazing woman. She is so encouraging. She believes I can do anything. She believes I can do no wrong, which is not necessarily the best thing. (laughs) But I love her. She's my greatest cheerleader. 75 years old, to this day, if one of you guys had offended me and I told my mom that story, she'd be like, what's his phone number? You know? She is mama bear through and through. She loves me, and she is for me 100%. And how incredible is that? How does that make someone feel when you have someone in your corner that believes in you, that is for you 100%? It's incredible. You can do anything. And God is that way for us. He is for us. He is our greatest cheerleader. He is on our side. No matter what we're going through, he is in the stands cheering us on. He's got the big, big obnoxious sign that says, I love you. I am for you. You can do it. That's the God that we serve. How do we know this? Because verse 32 tells us God proved that he's for us in the fact that he gave us his only son. Verse 34 tells us, that his son is for us. Verse 26 tells us that the spirit is for us. And verse 28 tells us that all things are working together for good for us. The conclusion is obvious. If God is for us, then who can be against us? And the answer is no one. No one can be against us. And the phrase suggests that God is on our side, that he's working for us. Therefore, there is no need to fear that you would ever be separated from him. Again, John Stott The situation that Paul envisages is one in which God is for us. 
since he has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified us. This being so, who can be against us? To that question, there is no answer. All the powers of hell may set themselves together against us, but they can never prevail since God is on our side. Amen? Isn't that awesome? So what do we conclude from this? Well, Robert Muntz, in his commentary, gives us six things to remind us of how God is on our side. The first he tells us is this. As children of God, we have been adopted into his family, verse 15. Secondly, we are co-heirs with Christ, verse 17. Verse 23, we have received the Spirit as the guarantee of final redemption. Fourthly, our prayers are taken up by the Spirit and laid before God, verse 26. Fifth, though sinners by nature, through faith, we have been acquitted of all wrong. And sixth, our future glorification is so certain that God speaks of it as already having taken place. And at the end of last week's study, guys, if you didn't hear it, if you weren't here, really want to encourage you to go back and listen to last week's study, looking at verses 28 through 30, the golden chain of our salvation, a remarkable study. God just blessed and anointed Rory as he taught that passage. And at the end of it, he gets to that place in verse 30 where it tells us that we've been predestined, we've been called, we've been justified, and we've been glorified, past tense, And Rory took some time to explain to us that that is actually in the Greek. It's the prophetic past tense, meaning that the promise of glorification is a promise that is so sure and so certain that it's considered as already done. We keep thinking in our mind like, oh, one day we will be glorified. No, in God's economy, we're already glorified. We live in this already but not yet existence already glorified we can't see it yet but in god's economy it's already done certainly god is for us douglas moo says this paul is suggesting by his rhetorical question is that nobody and no thing can ultimately harm or stand in the way of the one whom god is for and so the very first immutable fact that Paul wants to bring our attention to is that God is for us. The second is that Christ died for us. Look at verse 32. Verse 32 says, And he did not spare his own son. This is the verse that Rory was talking about before we sing that last song in our worship. Verse 32, And he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And the way that Paul phrases the question here, it banishes any doubt as to God's graciousness or loving kindness towards his children. It's an argument of lesser to greater. The argument here is if, that's the effectual cause, if when we were still sinners, God gave us his very best, how much more, now that we are his children, how much more will he provide for our every need? How much more will he meet us? Well, of course he will. He's a good, good father. We sing that word, we sing that song all the time. You're a good, good father. And Jeremiah 29, 11 says that his thoughts toward us are for good and not for evil, to give us a future and a hope. And Jesus used this same argument in the Gospels when he was talking to people who are worried and anxious and fretting and full of fear. And he said, guys, I want you to take a look Look at the field in front of you. 
Do you see the lilies of the field? Do you see the birds of the air? They neither toil nor reap, but their heavenly Father provides for them. How much more will your heavenly Father provide for you, his children? Of course he's going to provide. Robert Muntz again said this, A God who sacrificed his own son on our behalf will certainly not withhold that which by comparison is merely trivial. The immeasurable greatness of God's love is seen in the infinite nature of his sacrifice on our behalf. Paul's point is that we must, all we have to do to answer the question, does God really care? Is God really aware? Is God really for me? Is he truly looking out for my best interest? All we have to do to answer that question is look to the cross. Is look to Calvary. Because that is the most perfect expression of God's love for us. That he is for you. Jesus going to the cross. Such a good word for us, I think, especially as many of us in this room, I think back to that day where many of us stood in pain, in suffering. And it's very common in those times to ask the question, Lord, where are you now? I need you now. I'm praying. I'm, I'm, I'm seeking the face of God. I'm rattling the gates of heaven. And it seems like the heavens are like brass. Where are you, Lord? And Paul encourages us, all we have to do in that moment when we feel lost, when we feel alone, is to look to Calvary and remember that God's past faithfulness demands our present trust. God is for us. Christ died for us to prove it. John Stott said the cross is the guarantee of the continuing, unfailing generosity of God. I love that. Quick, simple, It's the guarantee of the continuing, unfailing generosity of God. And for this reason, we can be confident, we can be free from fear that in Christ Jesus, we have ultimate provision. So the first immutable fact, that God is for us. The second, that Christ died for us. The third is found in verse 33, that God has justified us. Look what it says in verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Paul's argument, Paul's argument is that no accusation can succeed since God our judge is already justified. And furthermore, we can never be condemned since Jesus Christ, our advocate, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, has died in our place has died for sins, has been raised from the dead, and is seated now at the right hand of God. Therefore, all accusations fall to the ground. John Stott said this, they're like, they're like arrows that glance off of our shield. That's what it's like when, when Satan casts an accusation, it just glances off of our shield like an arrow. When Paul asks the question, who shall bring a charge against us? The obvious answer is, no one. No one can. Because there's no higher tribunal than God himself. Now, Satan can try. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, it tells us that he is the accuser of the brethren. He can try. And let me say this. Did you know that the greatest weapon that Satan uses to tear down Christians is not temptation? 
I'll say it again. The greatest weapon that Satan uses to tear down Christians is not temptation. It's accusation. Think of it. You listen to that voice a lot, don't you? You're not good enough. You think you're a child of God. You think you're saved. You guys ever heard those voices before? Trying to be self-righteous. I've heard those voices. I hear them every day. His greatest weapon is accusation. But we stand righteous in Jesus Christ. I love the story of the woman caught in adultery. In John chapter 8, you guys know the story. The Pharisees, they bring this woman who's been caught in the very act of adultery to Jesus, and they say, hey, the law says this. What do you say? And Jesus says to them, hey, he, without, he who has no sin, let him cast the first stone. And one by one, they drop their stone, and they walk away. Eventually, everyone is gone except for Jesus and this woman. And he looks at the woman and says to her, hasn't said anything to her at this point, and looks at her and says, woman, where are your accusers? Who condemns you? And she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus says to her something absolutely amazing. Neither do I accuse you. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. In John chapter 19, Jesus said something profound from the cross. He cried out the words, Tetelestai. It is finished. It is paid in full in reference to the handwriting requirements that stood against us, that were contrary to us. Paul talks about this in in Colossians. Jesus took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. The law and all of its demands, we had broken them. We were guilty. And Jesus took all of that and nailed it to the cross, dealing with it once and for all. He's already paid the penalty. We're secure in him. We are God's elect, chosen in Christ, accepted in Christ. That is a constant and that is permanent. And may I give you a simple family secret? Just lean forward a little bit. Whisper it in your ear. Just lean forward. (laughs) Simple family secret. When God declares believers as righteous in Christ, that declaration never changes. It never changes. Now, life happens. And as Christians, we experience different things from day to day. Even our Christian experience can change from day to day. But what never changes is our position in Him. What never changes is our justification in Him. What never changes is our standing before God. It never changes. Amen? In Christ, we have an ultimate advocate. And so God is for us. Christ died for us. Thirdly, God justifies us. And fourthly, Jesus Christ intercedes for us. Look at verse 34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Isaiah chapter 54 verse 17 says this, No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Every time I read that, I think of some friends of ours from back in Corvallis. They wrote a song about this. And I, I think of it all the time. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. No, it won't work, is what they said in their song. 
And so Isaiah says, No weapon formed against us shall prosper. Every tongue which rises against you in judgment shall be con- or you shall condemn. And I love this section. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Guys, listen to that. That's the heritage of the servants of, of the Lord, that God protects us from any accusation that comes against us. He shields us from it. He guards us. The Bible actually tells us that he's our rear guard. He's our shield, our strong fortress. He protects us from these things. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Charles Hodge says, Jesus continues to secure for us, or for his people, by his life, the benefits of his death. Guys, Jesus is alive. He didn't stay in the grave. Three days later, he rose. For 40 days, he walked around this earth and then ascended to the right hand of God. He ever lives to make intercession, ever lives to represent us before the throne of God. He lives, and because he lives, he lives so that the benefits of his death would be freely ours continually. Amen? And I love the fact that it tells us in Romans 8, 26 through 27, that the Spirit intercedes for us and you add that to the fact that jesus here in verse 34 intercedes for us and what that tells us is is that we have this incredible divine dual intercession that takes place on our behalf to secure the believer in christ the holy spirit praying for us the son praying for us so we have this divine dual intercession on our behalf securing us in the love of God. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it says, Therefore he, God, is able to save completely those who come to God through him, Jesus, because he, Jesus, always lives to intercede for them. The fact that Jesus ever lives to intercede, the fact that Jesus ever lives to represent us before the throne of God means, listen, that we don't have to represent ourselves. We don't have to represent ourselves. Isn't that awesome? We don't even have to say a word. He has our defense. It's in the bag, so to speak. Douglas Moo says, not only has Jesus died to secure justification, more than that, he's been raised and has, been, has also ascended to the right hand of God so that he may intercede for us, ensuring that the justifying verdict for which he died is applied to us in the judgment Because Christ lives and has ascended, he is able to intercede for us, acting as our high priest in the very presence of God. John Stott also says, his very presence at the Father's right hand is evidence of his completed work of atonement. And his intercession means that he continues to secure for his people the benefits of his death, With this Christ as our Savior who died, was raised, and has been exalted and is interceding, we know that there is now no condemnation for those who are united in him. And all this to say, if accusations are brought against us, we need not fear. Because all accusations are silenced by the raised, pierced hands of our Savior Jesus. Think about that. Every time Satan goes, oh, ah, Father in heaven, I just want to say that, you know, Chris is not a very good Christian. He was speeding the other day, and he broke the law. 
He is a lawbreaker, therefore he should be condemned. Jesus goes, oh, I got this. See, see these right here? Nail-pierced hands, I paid for that. Oh, wait a minute, did you know that Chris, he's a hypocrite, God. He's a hypocrite. He acts like a Christian, but man, behind the scenes, he can be mean sometimes. He can be critical, he can be judgmental. And Jesus, see, paid for it, done. Every accusation falls to the ground because of the, the raised, pierced hands of Christ as our intercessor. Isaiah 50 says this, For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I will set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And so the first four immutable facts that were found in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, that God is for us, that Christ died for us, that God justifies us, and that Christ intercedes for us. And now the fifth one, verses 35 through 39. Christ loves us. Christ loves us. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? I think when Paul was writing this, he was actually kind of recounting his life experience. He tells us in 1 Corinthians of all the things he went through. And he went through all of these things except the very last one, sword, or represents death. Well, he eventually one day will experience that. So he knows firsthand what he's talking about here, about these tribulations, these trials, these distresses. He, he understands it. And he can t- tell us and testify from the pages of Scripture that even though all of those things happened to me, one thing never changed, and that was Christ's love for me. It doesn't matter what happens. Come heck or high water, the love of Christ never changes. It never changes. In Romans chapter 31 through 34, Paul proved that God will not fail us. But is it possible that we can fail him? Suppose there's a great trial. Suppose there's great tribulation. It comes upon us. It befalls us and we fail. What then? Well, Paul deals with that problem in this final section when he explains that nothing, no thing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Think about it. God does not shelter us from difficulties in life, does he? He doesn't shelter us from the difficulties of life. In fact, he uses those to help us grow spiritually. In Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, he tells us that temptations are good. In fact, he says, let us glory in tribulation. Let us glory in tribulation because tribulation produces something. Produces perseverance. And perseverance, perseverance produces what? Character. And character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint So God permits trials to come that he might use them for our good and for our glory to shape us more and more into his image, to make us more useful in the ministry, to prepare us for eternity. Look at verse 37. Yet in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded or convinced, depending on your translation, 
that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul in verse 35 gives us seven afflictions all real, all unpleasant demeaning, painful, hard to bear, and challenging to our faith. And then he doubles down in verses 37 through 39 and gives us 10 items which some might think powerful enough to separate us from the love of God. And Paul uses this rhetorical language, not technical language, rhetorical language that affirms Psalm 139 verse 8 that tells us that neither the highest height nor the deepest depth nor heaven or earth or hell can separate us from the love of God. And he concludes by saying this, nor any other created thing, just in case he forgot something, right? He goes north, south, east, west, goes three-dimensional, four-dimensional, does all these different things. He goes, but in case I forgot anything, nothing created in the history of creation can separate us from the love of God. Even in the worst of scenarios, he tells us in verse 37 that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And Paul's point is that everything, everything in creation is under the control of God the creator and of Jesus Christ the Lord. That's why he can confidently say, and we can confidently say, that nothing is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 28, Paul begins by saying, we know. We know that all things work together for good. We know. In verse 38, he says this, I am convinced. I am convinced that nothing can break the golden chain of Romans chapter 8, verse 30. John Stott says, Our confidence is not in our love for him, which is frail, fickle, and faltering, but in his love for us, which is steadfast, faithful, and preserving. And so Paul closes Romans chapter 8 with this, um, this amazing chapter, affirming that our security in Christ is established on these five immutable facts, that God is for us, that Christ died for us, that God has justified us, that Christ intercedes for us, and lastly, that Jesus Christ loves us. I love Romans chapter 8. I love it. It is such a profound chapter. And I love the fact that we took our time going through it, seven weeks getting through Romans chapter 8. We could have slowed it down even more. One verse a day. (laughs) we could have done it for 39 Sundays. But I love the fact we slowed down and just marinated it for a while. At the end of chapter 7, the the Christian looks defeated. At the end of chapter 8, the Christian is victorious. He's victorious. Free from judgment. Free from defeat. Free from discouragement. Free from fear. Romans 8 contains four triumphant proclamations. For the Christian, there is no condemnation. There is no obligation. There is no frustration. And there is no separation. If God be for us, 
Christians, brothers and sisters, who can be against us? And I want to end this morning just with a quote from Timothy Keller. It's a long one, so I kind of saved it to the very end. I'll have the worship team start making their way forward. And Timothy Keller says this, Christians triumph through and over the worst that life brings. Why? Because God does not lose any of those he foreknew. God is always working for the good of those who love him. He is in loving, sovereign control of every aspect of human history. And so Paul is convinced that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in human experience, neither death, nor life. Nothing in spiritual realm, neither angels nor demons. Nothing in time, neither the present nor the future. Nothing in anything that opposes God's people. Any powers. Nothing in space, neither height nor depth. Nothing in all of creation. Nothing. Nothing can separate us from Christ's love. Why? Because God loves us simply because of his choice. Not because of anything in us which may change or anything around us which may, which may change. He loves us because he loves us. What a great statement. He loves us because he loves us. The purpose of Paul using these five rhetorical questions after he asked the first question in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things, is he's trying to root out in the hearts and minds of every believer anything other than the idea we're saved by free grace so that we're completely free to live without fear. And so Paul, in in a style only his own, uses logic that is incredible, relentless, and intense, the kind that Martin Lloyd-Jones called logic on fire, (laughs) And he speaks of the doctrine of grace and the doctrines of justification. And guys, I cannot encourage you enough to consider the doctrines of free grace and justification more. To celebrate in them, to rejoice in them. They are not dry doctrines. They are life itself. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not living with overwhelming assurance. You're not living in power. And may I just encourage you with humility and with tenderness. May I just say this? Maybe you just don't quite understand, fully understand free grace, fully understand justification. And that's okay. And I want to encourage you to do your research. To study the Word of God. To read, to reread, to deeply ponder, and to learn to live out the truths that are contained in Romans chapter 8. Because I personally can testify in my own life, and I've seen it in countless hundreds, perhaps even thousands of others. It is the key to freedom. It is the key to life. And if you have questions, I want to just make myself available 
Rory will make himself available. The elders will be available as well. If you have questions, concerns, you just want us to pray for you, I want to pray for you and with you that you will come to understand fully and completely the doctrines of free grace and justification. Let's stand together. If I can leave you with this, it's simply this. I've said it already, and we'll say it again, because we need to have this burned into our hearts and minds, that God loves you because he loves you. Father, today we just thank you for your word. We thank you for Romans 8. We thank you, Lord, for these verses contained in 31 through 39. Lord, we thank you for those five immutable facts that you are for us, that Christ died for us, that you have justified us, that Christ intercedes for us, and that Jesus loves us. Jesus, you said in your word that he who the Son has set free is free indeed. And so I pray today that as we leave this place, Lord, that we would leave lighter than when we came in. Lord, all the accusations that we've been entertaining in our mind and in our hearts would fall by the wayside. And every fiery dart of the wicked one, Lord, would just bounce off a shield that you've established around us. Lord, encourage our hearts. Lord, let us not leave this place defeated, but in victory. And let us march forward as more than conquerors in Christ who loved us. I just want to give just a moment here for those of you today who may... You aren't experiencing that liberty, that freedom that Paul speaks about here in Romans 8. You don't quite understand free grace or justification. You've heard of it. Perhaps you've been coming to church for a while and you've heard it for a while here, but you're still just struggling with that freedom. You live in condemnation. You live in a state of defeat. You feel stuck. You live in fear, dominated by fear. God wants to set you free from guilt, from shame, from regret. He wants to pour his love into your heart. I just want to give a moment here as we're just sitting here. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to do anything, but just as you're there, if that's you, just cry out to the Lord right where you're at. You're among brothers and sisters here. All of us have done it. Continually do it. I just want to encourage you. Just call out to the Lord and say, Lord, I thank you, Lord, that I'm free from condemnation. I thank you, Lord, that I'm free, according to your word, from accusation. I thank you, Lord, that you're for me, that Christ died for me, that you've justified me, that Jesus intercedes for me, and that you love me. Lord, help me to grow in my understanding of what it means to be your son, your daughter. Help me, Lord God, to to walk in the newness of life that you've freely given me, unencumbered by past regrets 
by shame. Set me free from fear, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you will never leave me nor forsake me. That you love me because you love me, just the way I am. Help me to grow in that understanding. And Lord, I pray that you would bear fruit in my life for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.